This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. We're joined this week by Emerging Markets Editor Ed Reed and Content Editor Andrew Dykes. Hello both, uh, keeping well. Has everyone signed up to Threads yet? I have to say that I have. You have? I've been very excited about it. I mean, I've got, I've got absolutely no idea what I'm doing. It feels like no one does, but I'm just—I just feel very zeitgeisty You're now. You're so ahead of the I game. I feel that for, for for the first time in my life, I've just got my finger on the pulse and I'm running with it. I don't know <laughs> what's going on, but it, it seems nobody else does. I can't see. It's the blind leading the blind, but damn it, it feels good. What about you, Andy? Have you uh, taken the plunge? You're an Instagram power user, Ed, right? So you're you're well versed <laughs> in the th- in the thread verse. Uh, yeah, I'm on there. I stake stake my claim very early, oh just gosh. in case anyone wanted to impersonate me or create a brand around me. My own personal brand is my own. I haven't signed up to this. Now I feel so far behind. <laughs> this, is this what happens? Is you feel left behind? We're all on there having oh, fun. Now. This is what happens. In fact, in fact we're, we're on there gossiping left about you. Left out again. <laughs> left out again. What can we well, do? What is the verb for threads? I was it, is it threading? What have we worked Thread, out? Threading. Threading. What, yeah, what, what, that, post? Is it just posting? Needle Why craft? is it called? <laughs> Well, I, I mean, you get a Twitter thread, don't you? So, I mean, it's it seems it seems egregious. I saw uh, Zuckerberg came out of Twitter hibernation to post a, a Spider-Man pointing each other meme. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> the world is such a strange, strange place, and I'm feeling like a very old man right now. But uh, you never know. We'll maybe see what we can do with threads and in the in the in the hours and days ahead. Uh, anyway, we'll <laughs> we'll move on for that and start this week with. Something a little bit more serious on uh, HSE and offshore safety. So we've heard a lot over the course of months, over the course of many conferences about maintenance being delayed in the UK North Sea due to COVID and that not being caught up on. So we decided to put a Freedom of Information request out to the Health and Safety Executive to find out just how bad it is. And the HSE came back with Well, uh, delayed maintenance and a whole lot more. Um, Certainly examples of thousands of hours of safety-critical work being left outstanding and unchecked on individual platforms. We've got 28 letters disclosed to us delivered since October of last year. And that showed about 15, or it showed 15 individual platforms that raised quite serious HSE issues. So I won't list all of them. Some of the more egregious ones include... Nearly 18,000 safety-critical hours of backlog on Enquest's Magnus. No comment at all from Enquest on that. Nearly 13,000 hours on Repsol Sinopec's Montrose. Total Energy's Dunbar, they found a number of issues, not least 164 life jackets. 60% of those on board had expired their safety certificates. So imagine needing to escape and finding your life jacket wasn't working. That's what could have happened. Apache's 40s Alpha, serious risk of a support case on failing. We've seen that type of issue seeing platforms shut down for months in recent times. Elsewhere, uh, a long stagnant water tank used for the fire safety system uh, on one platform, having a risk of exposing people to Legionella bacteria. There was an example of people uh, who regularly interact with asbestos, not being given proper training. Asbestos, for those who don't know, strongly linked to the type of cancer mesothelioma. And lifeboats, it was discovered on Taka's cormorant, where the OIM had concerns that the workers literally couldn't fit into them. So, I mean, you've got a question there of capacity, number of people on board. You've got a question there about if someone needs to get into a stretcher, for example, and be stretched into that lifeboat in the space available. So 
a lot of talk in the industry about maintaining this chronic unease on safety, constant vigilance. We have the anniversary of Piper Alpha just passed this week. And I think this shows this pretty strong evidence that this chronic unease is not being adhered to, adhered to in certain quarters and more than just a few. Um, so I've been lost in this stuff for a while, um, but I wanted to get, um, I mean, you guys' thoughts on this. I mean, you've seen the information. I mean, what's what's your reaction, you know, hearing some of this stuff? I mean, I think we, we cover these issues, uh, if not weekly, then I'd say a couple of times a month. I think it's what surprised me was how much those issues are just the tip of the iceberg, right? You mm -hmm. have these kind of individual inspections that occasionally reveal different things. Sometimes it is just kind of paperwork and risk assessment type stuff that hasn't been either kept up with or filled in properly. And those are kind of, you know, th that's the extent that we, we see the regular heartbeat of these HSC inquiries. I think when you see the full scale of it, you know, I think it's it's not even below the waterline, really, in, in this yeah. case. But the 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 scale of, um, yeah, the backlog, I think, particularly from COVID is, is quite shocking, really. And when, you know, I kind of remember back to about 2018, there was a big push around hydrocarbon releases, and that seemed to be the main uh, thrust of the HSE's involvement was, was kind of making sure that these incidents weren't uh, occurring. I think they've now got a whole different kettle of fish to, to worry about now in this intervening period. And, it, you know, they're really going to have to prioritize how they go about getting getting operators to take this seriously, I think. Mm. On that note, how do they get operators to take it seriously? I mean, obviously, it sounds like a sort of a widespread, you know, pattern of of, of sort of uh, problems, right? I mean, I think it, it feels like there's, there's a sort of a, there are a number of problems across the industry. It, I mean, what's the what's the problem? Is the is the regulator not strong enough? Do the companies just not listen? How do you how do you change that? I, I think I think the question for the regulator is is an important one, Ed, and I think I think you've perhaps uh, hit, hit on the point here. I mean, we we know the offshore inspectors are are stretched, um, and we know the the regulator is stretched. But I mean, to, to Andy's point, and somebody I, I think I saw commented on the story, basically make, making this point that this is only the ones that we've heard about. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, we asked up to October for these letters because that I had I had a copy of one of the letters and decided uh, that must be when they sent their you know their their letters out following their inspections. But you know, th th there could be a lot lot more that we're not hearing about. Um, so yeah, it, it, does the HSE need to be stronger? We certainly hear a, a lot of action from them when it comes to someone getting seriously hurt, but it doesn't need to be firmer in the lead up to um, you know. Before things get get terrible, I mean, this chronic unease thing. You know, again, I mentioned we're in the 35th anniversary of Piper Alpha, and, and this would suggest cre creeping complacency. I mean, one of the examples here, a deluge system. That's the fire, the system to douse a fire offshore. Right, one of these platforms had no. They knew that their deluge system was blocked for eight months and did nothing about it. I mean, that's not just an HSE problem, it's a serious cultural problem. I guess what we should probably highlight is that many of the operators mentioned this piece, not all of them, I mentioned Enquest already who didn't comment, um, but many of the operators in the piece did come back to us and confirm that work has either been completed or in the process of being completed to address these issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's 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 quite shocking, uh, some of the stuff that, that came out of it. And we did ask OEUK, the trade body, what's being done about it in terms of that maintenance backlog piece. Um, and I caught up with Mark Wilson, who's their HSE director. He tells me that, um, yes, backlog's up due to COVID. That's recognized. They set up a 
maintenance task finish group uh, towards the, the end of 2021, I think it was. And during 2022, they managed to stop the growth. Now, it's only down by about 4%, 4 uh, which obviously isn't much. But stopping the growth, stemming the bleed, if you like, we shouldn't dismiss that out of hand either. Uh, he also told me that a large amount of undeferred maintenance has moved to deferred. Now, what does that mean? It, it means that kind of undeferred maintenance is being reviewed by technical specialists, risk assessed, being managed in a risk-based process. But 40% of that undeferred work has moved to deferred. So uh, a lot of work to go, I think it's fair to say. I did ask, you know, what would the target be in terms of getting the numbers down? Because, you know, we heard that 4% has been cut. And he basically said um, that they're, you know, consulting on that in, in terms of finding a number. So they don't, they don't have one at this stage would be... I think a fair way to classify that. Um, what was HSE itself doing, the regulator? Well, it says it's got a program of inspections planned for the months ahead, which will hopefully confirm, hopefully confirm that action, uh, the actions that the operators are saying is taking place has indeed taken place. Um, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, on the flip side, we do hear quite a lot about how stretched the the inspection team is. So, as I say, uh, it doesn't it doesn't fill one with confidence some of the stuff that we're hearing it, you know you you appreciate we do appreciate that you know things got everything got kicked to the right due to covid and there, there was you know down manning there was um you know a, a need to keep production going whilst you know having much fewer people offshore but it does seem now that they really need to get a grip of this because some of the stuff that's coming out of it is really quite quite shocking uh to hear um so i, th I think the the other thing is like you know, I think there's a, a case for pragmatism. These a lot of these are really old assets. They're in an incredibly tough environment, and there's a case for pragmatism around like the inspection routines and making sure things are kind of up to code, but also allowing people to do that, especially given the, the backlog of COVID. But I think against you know companies that have had more free cash than they know what to do with, mm -hmm. we're now you know kind of eighteen months of relative normality through this, I think like if, if you're not going to be investing in safety, you know, and, and ensuring these assets are kind of fit for purpose, then what, what's the point, you know? Yeah. And I think the, the HSC, I think is going to have to get a lot, uh, maybe a lot more vocal on this, on this point, kind of potentially to the public and to kind of ministers and things as well. That, that, yeah, that's, that's a really, that's one other um, point that would be good to just touch on briefly. I mean, the industry talks so much about, you know, lessons being shared, um, and that's fine. They're all shared internally. They're not made known to the public. None of these examples, very, very rarely, are made known to the public unless we dig them out. It's not the same thing as transparency. And, you know, in terms of the money thing, yeah, I actually at one point considered um, juxtaposing some of this stuff with um, the annual profits of these companies. Um, so, but, you know, chose against that. I thought that perhaps just be crossing a line. But, you know, it would illustrate a point in terms of the work that needs done and the investment. So I think it's a very good point, Andy. Um, but yes, well, See what, what comes of this. We'll obviously be keeping a close eye on it. But uh, staying on the theme of offshore safety, we'll next be taking a look at the world's unregulated, unsafe dark fleet of oil tankers. Ever Greencast is the latest podcast series from Sustainable Growth Outlet. This two-part series is brought to you in paid partnership with Scottish Woodlands and the Confederation of Forest Industries. We'll be exploring some of the challenges and opportunities of sustainable forestry. For our first episode, I'm joined by David Robertson, Director of Investment and Business Development at Scottish Woodlands, and Stuart Goodall, Chief Executive at the Confederation of Forest Industries. 
We'll be touching on some of the opportunities that sustainable forestry has to offer, from carbon sequestration to timber construction and job creation, as well as some of the changes that can bring these possibilities into reality. This podcast is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Andrew, so, well, what's meant by a dark fleet, I suppose, to start, and uh, what kind of incidents have we been seeing? Yeah, not for for Star Trek fans, this is thoroughly uh, naval uh, this segment, but uh, obviously one of the things, uh, there have been many impacts of sanctions uh, on Russia since the invasion of Ukraine and the limiting of commodity trading and kind of currency partners for how it can do that. But one that's kind of leapt to prominence this year is the emergence or at least the coverage of this kind of dark or, or quote shadow fleet. So this is essentially Russia and uh, other partners using various deceptive shipping practices to circumvent these sanctions, mainly in this case for kind of crude and oil products uh, being shipped around the world. So this kind of uh, fleet has already been used by other sanctioned regimes. You know, we've seen it in the cases of of crude and and other products from places like Iran and Venezuela. But certainly this year, there seems to have been a big pickup in the awareness of it and and the size. So uh, Ed and I uh, spoke to Windward, the maritime AI company, they have estimated the uh, fleet of grey vessels uh, to number around 900 around the world. So that's kind of various shades of this semi-legit and non-legit uh, businesses being conducted by tankers that maybe they do some legitimate business, maybe they kind of move into some more illicit business. Uh, there's also then a 1,000 vessels, they estimate, uh, over a 1,000 in, in this dark fleet. So this is uh, vessels which are intentionally disabling their automatic identification systems to move cargoes. They are changing IDs, they're changing locations, uh, they are changing the names of the vessels often and uh, operating under multiple flags of convenience. The uh, fleet is mainly comprised of older vessels. Uh, there was a, an article from the Washington Post earlier this year that said uh, it was a lot of older vessels that are being offloaded um, to these kind of shadow companies. Basically, otherwise they would be scrapped, but these companies are now picking them up for just slightly more money than if they were completely stripped down. And uh, they're very unlikely to ever return to the conventional market. So I'd, I'd hate to use the word kind of rust buckets, but certainly there are very few of them are, I think, up fully up to code. Um, so last year saw a surge in sales to unknown buyers with 100 plus tankers changing hands. Uh, and over that time, there was a sharp decline in the number of vessels being scrapped according to Clarkson Research Services, which is part of the world's oldest shipbroker. They are often flagged under flexible or kind of difficult to enforce jurisdictions to places like Panama, Liberia, and the Marshall Islands. Mm. And the consequences of this kind of growing fleet of of aging vessels uh, is really already being seen. So in May, um, one particular incident was the explosion on board the Pablo tanker offshore Malaysia. So this was a nearly uh, empty Aframax tanker. It had visited China and it was likely heading back to uh, Iran when this incident occurred. There was another case, a case of a ship called the Titan, which at that time was its eighth registered name that was detained in China a few months ago after it failed a safety inspection on more than 20 counts. Um, So in the case of the Pablo, uh, it's not clear what caused the explosion, although recent reports uh, citing the captain, Lepioskin Alexander, have suggested a fire broke out on the upper deck and... uh, while the hold was empty, there was enough uh, residual gas to cause a buildup and ignite the deck there. So three of the, the 28 crew on board were killed and the rest were rescued by Malaysian authorities. So the where the tanker had been had raised a number of, of red flags. So at the time of the incident, it was sailing under the flag of Gabon. It only had that designation for six days 
And prior to that, it changed its flag a number of times, um, which again kind of suggests uh, not fully above board activity. Its uh, listed owner is a Marshall Islands based company called Pablo Union Shipping, which is a single ship shell company. <laughs> um, Ed, you spoke to the Windward CEO. I think he said basically <laughs> these uh, the, the vessels that are going into this fleet, you know, are not <laughs> particularly. Uh, up to safety standards, uh, and that you know they they would never meet the standards that you would hope to normally ship crude with. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think uh, obviously we're kind of seeing the, the the result of that, right? As things like uh, the, the accidents with the Pablo and others uh, kind of take place. And and obviously I think I think it was it was his uh, kind of point that the longer this goes on, obviously the more accidents we'll see happen. Um, obviously, the kind of the, as, as as sanctions tighten, these 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 ships and these companies uh, will seek new ways in which to kind of transact this business, which obviously just kind of you know makes it more and more dangerous. I think another thing that that is kind of an interesting point is the sort of the ship to ship transfers of of crude, which is when uh, you know a, a a tanker full of Russian or or, or some other sort of illicit crude uh, meets up with another uh, ship somewhere. And they uh, in the in the in the middle of the sea and the ocean, and they, they they transfer over this crude, and obviously, that is something that has its uh, share of problems, even in sort of highly regulated uh, circumstances. I think you know there's been some discussion around 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 it taking place offshore of the UK, and obviously there's a sort of a fairly strict regulatory environment with that. But obviously, doing it uh, in this kind of uh, black economy, um, you know, without the you know proper support in terms of sort of other tugs and sort of inspections and things, it really just makes accidents more likely. So I think, yeah, it was it was a slightly terrifying uh, conversation where uh, you know you sort of start off asking kind of innocuous questions, and then by the end of the interview, you're just sort of shaking your head and thinking, "Oh my god!" Like obviously, more accidents are going to happen. Yeah, Amy, Amy Daniel, who you spoke to, said all the building blocks of safety in this industry are slowly deteriorating, <laughs> uh, which is is quite a warning. Um, so I, I think it's worth as well the uh, the segment on the Pablo, um, you know, is is still ongoing. So. It, as of late June, when we wrote the article, it had been left unattended for nearly two months. Um, they cannot contact the owners. Um, there are no confirmed insurers who are stepping in to say that they're kind of responsible for this. And it basically leaves the Malaysian authorities in whose jurisdiction this has fallen really unsure of what to do with it. So until you've determined any of those things, it, it can't really be designated a wreck. Uh, and I think it's the Nairobi Convention would kick in, which provides a legal basis for states to remove wrecked vessels, which pose a, ha- a hazard to the uh, navigation or the marine environment. Usually in, in uh, legitimate cases, uh, a hull insurer would kind of become the de facto owner, and at least then it has a financial interest in removing and uh, realizing the scrap value of the vessel, and also presumably reputationally, you want an insurer to respond quickly to something like that. Um, so it, it really opens up much wider questions, I think, around this industry if this starts to happen more often. Um, I think one one thing as well that's worth noting is we found, Ed, you finally got through to someone, but we found it kind of quite difficult to speak to people or to find people who are willing to go on the record and talk about the extent of this fleet and kind of what the safety implications were. I, I managed to speak to Lloyd's Register, who I think had recently um, deflagged some vessels they thought were, were being used to circumvent sanctions, um, but kind of were limited in what they could say as to their uh, fears, as to their estimations of this market. You know, they're, they're really only stepping in in these cases where it's absolutely ironclad 
Um, but it's very clear this is a problem that I think is only going to get more visible and potentially more worse. Troubling. Troubling as hell to hear. Um, but we'll leave the, the dark fleet in the shadows for now. And next, we'll move over to, well, greenwashing. We'll talk about it after this. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, so Ed, Adnoc, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, uh, has been considering a name change. Yeah, so um, it, the, 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 essentially these, there were some documents that were leaked to a sort of a, an, an environmental sort of investigative uh, NGO and, and, they, and, they, and, they, and they published them this week. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's all part of the sort of the run up to, uh, to, to COP28. So that is taking place in uh, Dubai in November um, and the head of adnoc so that's you know one of the world's largest oil companies is the uh president delegate so essentially sort of runs the show at cop 28 and obviously that you know the so the president essentially gets a chance to sort of uh set his uh, sort of terms what his aims are what his goals are and there's been a lot of hoo-ha uh technical term about 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 whether an oil company could uh could could could, could properly run uh cop um and uh, you know, it's 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 picked up a lot of opposition. I think there was an open letter from uh US and European lawmakers about a month or so ago. I think there was about 130 people signed up, essentially saying that Sultan Al Jabal was not a fit and proper person to be the president of COP. Uh that 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 someone with 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 greener credentials uh should uh, should 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 take that role. So um it obviously Adnox saw this coming. Um, you know, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a company that that kind of <laughs> could 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 see what was coming, um, and so at the end of last year, they started thinking about ways to you know maybe rebrand. Ultimately, they decided not to, although uh, they they have you know suggested this might still be an option in future. Um, but but for the time being, Adnox is 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 keeping the oil in its uh, in its oil company. Um, but I think I suppose um, it's 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 there's, there's very much a sort of a divided uh, opinion about whether uh, the head of Adnoc is 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 the right guy to to be to be running a COP. I think you know, obviously there are you know environmentalist people in the West who say um, he's an oil company official, he's you know helping kind of pollute the world. This is not the person. But on the other side of it, there are those people who say, um, in fact, you know the the event that I was at last week, um, somebody said that. Uh, Sultan Al Jabal was the perfect person to to, to run COP uh, because um, as an energy company, as an oil company, this was uh, Adnoc was able to kind of play a key role in providing that transition. It you know was it would be involved in financing. It would be able to kind of straddle that uh, that gap between the sort of the hydrocarbons and the, and the obviously the revenues from hydrocarbons and those investments in in new opportunities. Um, it. Fortunately, I suppose uh, this week also um, 
the uh, the uh, Abu Dhabi and the UAE set out its plans to uh, have for a hydrogen strategy, for an EV strategy. Um, the UAE is going to produce something like 1.4 million tonnes of hydrogen per year by 2031. Uh, ramping that up to 15 million tons by 2050. Um, they're going to invest something like $54 billion over the next seven years in uh, renewable and clean energy capacity. They're going to remove coal from their energy mix. They've brought in nuclear, uh, which obviously is, is divisive in some camps, but um, it is at least zero carbon. Um so I think that it is this challenge that, that ADNOC and the UAE and Abu Dhabi sort of face, right? And essentially the energy system is that we can see that, you know, there is a need to change. And I think, you know, so uh, Algebra speaking on the weekend in, at, at an OPEC meeting was saying that the phase down of fossil fuels is inevitable. Um, but it, it, but he said that there was a need to sort of manage that transition to, you know, endure energy security, affordability, all those sorts of things that we've had to think about over the last sort of year or so following uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine that perhaps we've not put in the past. So it's it's very much uh, a, a big question. I mean, I imagine that, you know, these these, these discussions will continue into into the, those meetings at Dubai. But um, I think there's, there's, there's clearly no sign that... Uh, Adnock is rolling over on this. I, I take the points on uh, hydrogen, and, and indeed, I think your piece refers to uh, uh, emissions intensity being brought down as well. But maybe to take the the shot that I'm sure the, the environmentalists will. I mean, Adnock has Upper Zakum, you know, the, what the world's second largest offshore oil field, and obviously we talk a lot on this podcast about the pressure that you know Ithaca and Shell and Equinor get over Cambo and Rosebank. These are tiny, tiny in comparison to this giant. Uh, from Adnoc, which they are continuing to exploit in in a very very material way. So I mean, I guess if they're going to change their name, removing oil, I'm assuming. I mean, would that be a fair and accurate way to reflect their business? It seems like the answer is no. Is that is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose you know, like a number of companies have 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 taken that change, haven't they? I mean, uh, so Statoil moved to Equinor. Total became Total Energies. I mean, I think you know this is sort of the, that sort of discussion that a lot of these companies are having. I think, as you as you rightly say, right, like Adnoc is clearly a major oil producer, and they will continue to be a major oil producer. Uh, but they are taking those you know quite important steps to 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 reduce emissions. Uh, for instance, uh, electrifying uh, you know pretty much. I think the the plans to electrify the onshore and offshore. Uh, they're linking it all up to the national grid. They are, you know, moving uh, drilling rigs from being, you know, diesel fired into into electrified. So I think you know, they are they are taking steps. They have a, a desire to, you know, I think be the. I think they talked about being the lowest uh, carbon emitter per barrel of oil. Um, so I think you know, in terms of um, sort of future supply, I think you know, Adnox certainly has got a, a, a really strong position, and I mean. You know they've got this sort of ambition essentially to be the you know the sort of the, the the last producer standing because they say they can do it very cheaply and 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 with the lowest amount of carbon emissions and obviously the world will need oil you know going right through until 2050 and beyond right I mean I think you know obviously even if it's just for sort of plastics and other things there will still be a need for it but but if that's the case then why change their name why not stand firm and make that case at COP26 rather than Consider. I mean, I know they're not done it, but you know, if, if that's if that's all right, and it, it, what you're saying is totally reasonable and correct, but you know, if that's the case, why why even consider a name change? Why not just argue the facts and 
stand firm if you if you get my meaning yeah well i mean i think so at cop 28 i think there is there is going to be that 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 challenge isn't there I and mean, i'm sure and i'm sure we will see this play out right i i imagine that there will be some degree of pushback over uh, over adnock's role and and obviously as you say right they did choose in the end not to change their names i mean i think there's there's a whole thing about sort of national oil companies uh, which obviously you can't really walk away from so i think there is um that sort of combination of I suppose state and commercial interests that we're seeing manifest in Adnock, which I think is a really interesting model to kind of follow through, and and obviously one that they are looking to, you know, invest some of that cash from oil revenues into cleaner energy. You you do wonder whether a, a kind of middle ground could have been found going for someone like Taka instead <laughs> of Adnock, which is very explicitly at least Taka has has the energy and water and lots of other utilities wrapped together that maybe they could tell a more convincing energy transition story maybe not i mean i, I think i think also i mean i think you know in to to, to speak in uh, sultan al jabba's uh, defense he's he's also uh, the chairman of mazda which is obviously uh, you know a major sort of renewable energy producer it's investing in renewable energy projects around the world in places like Angola, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, in ways that, frankly, you know, other companies are not, right? When we've talked about sort of the, the energy transition and the need for these kind of super majors to, to you know, transform and, and, and step up. But those guys, as far as I can tell, aren't really making those plans to put wind turbines in, say, sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, uh, well, thanks, Ed. COP28, November, just around the corner. I'm sure we'll be covering a lot more of that as that approaches. But that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So thank you to Ed and Andrew for joining me. I'm off to get us signed up to Threads and start a meme war with Upstream. So we'll be back <laughs> next week and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.